Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Net Positive Podcast. A podcast which educates and inspires marketers, product managers, and companies in the best way to generate and optimize your flows. We're your hosts, Matt Brown and Jess Walker, and we will bring you the latest on how to improve your signup flow, increase your leads, and grow your business. Let's Let's jump jump in. in. Today we are speaking with Jahan Gonsal-Karale, who is a product manager at Atlassian with a wealth of knowledge in data analytics, psychology, and customer research. We learn about how Jahan uses scientific methods to solve complex business problems and applies quantitative methods to find meaningful solutions that drive growth. Jahan talks us through what the change boarding process is, how to ask the right questions to users, and whether constant iterating is more effective than less frequent, big adjustments. Let's dive in. All right. G'day, Jahan. Welcome to the podcast. Howdy. Thanks for inviting me here. We're super excited to welcome someone with such a mixed background like yourself. You know, obviously, you you went through psychology, you've Mm -hmm. spent time in data analytics, and more recently, Mm -hmm. product management. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your journey? So, I kind of got into um, psychology, and then after doing honors in psych at Melbourne, um, I realized that what I actually really liked of psychology was more really the... um, the toolkit I got from the statistics training. So like learning how to use like linear regression, logistic right. regression, all that stuff. And using that to answer problems that were interesting to me was something that I didn't know existed. I didn't know that I could be interested in what drives happiness um, and answer that through quantitative approaches. The idea that I could use a, you know, mathematics to, to answer the questions of life was completely novel. So um, I was really excited by that. And I found out that there was a career I could get into in analytics um, where I built to do that. So I first worked in market research, doing very similar things to the kind of things you do in um, psychology, which is essentially sending out surveys and analyzing the data. But then from there, I moved into uh, you know the analytics of a loyalty program where I was working with Amia. Okay. And then from there, I moved into um, uh, Quantium. And Quantium is a company that does kind of all the data analysts, all the data science and data analytics stuff. While working, I did a master's in business analytics, which helped me kind of um, hone my skills a bit more. Although, I mean, analytics is one of those things where you have to just constantly be studying in your own time. Otherwise, you don't keep up. Sure. Um, so that was really good. But um, I'd say that analytics was a good fit, but not a great fit because uh, I love doing all the analysis. I love the the challenge of it all. Like it broke my brain multiple times <laughs> a week or multiple times a day, which is great. But the thing that I found hard was, yeah, at the end of the day, you're still in the corner on your computer, typing, typing the kind of the code and getting it all to work and getting stuck in really, really... Um, really, really tedious, small things sometimes, which I enjoyed less. I much enjoy, more enjoyed the kind of the free analysis where you try and answer a question, pump it out quickly, and then use it. And the using it and applying it part was what was missing. So being a PM was something that Quantium actually recommended to me because I needed a new PM. Oh, and um, I was always the analyst. Yeah, I was always the analyst that was doing the talking and trying to kind of connect things to business problems. Like I was less interested in, oh, wait, how can we, you know, how can we optimize this and what's the most mathematically elegant way to do it? I'd be like, yeah, but that's more elegant, but it's going to cost like, it's going to take 10 times longer to run, Mm. which means more compute power, which means more cost, which means, um, you know, all of this you're talking about is going to add to the bill at the end of the day. But what's the actual value? It's going to be slightly better, like imperceptibly better. So like, what are we talking about? Like that was my kind of take on things. And that's why they kind of pushed me towards more of a product management role. Um, well, not push me. I, they would. <laughs> Go here now. <laughs> nice. Awesome. And then from there, was it at Lassian? Uh, and then, yeah, from there, after about a year of being a product manager there, I became a PM at Atlassian. 
So let's want to first talk about your your past as a data analyst and you worked at Amia and Quantium that you just said, two companies with a focus on turning data insights into growth. Can you tell us a bit more about the applied examples from these experiences? I'd say it was probably more forethought in Quantium to give a, a better example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, Amia was good, but I mean, Amia was very much focused as well on just, I was doing a lot of data management and just managing the, the loyalty program data to make sure that we knew whom we'd contacted and when and, and about what um, and doing some simple um, analytics to understand where it was most effective. Um, forethought, on the other hand, was a lot more around, um, you know, using survey data to understand what was driving the market. Tell me about that. I'd say the most interesting thing is um, with Quantium, it's still is more a consulting kind of um, data product company, which might sound like I'm just throwing a bunch of words at you, but let me just explain <laughs> what I mean by that. Um, it's more around helping uh, companies figure out what to do with their data and helping them make decisions. And the challenge with Quantium, the same challenge happened at Forethought, which was you can tell people, you can understand what people need to do and what will be better and you can prove it to them, you know, mathematically. Yep. Uh, but if they don't understand it and trust it, they're not going to go with it. So you have to make it something that they can digest mm-hmm. and it needs to be the anal- analysis that they need rather than the analysis that you think they need, which is the most common mistake, which is, oh, we think we think this is the best way to frame your problem. They're like, yeah, but what about that? And you're like, oh, but this is kind of saying that. You're like, yeah, but it's not saying that. So that, and you're like, oh, but that be so much more effort and they're like yeah well it's kind of a bit of a waste of time it's not that because if they don't trust it or if it or if you miss the mark and don't understand commercially what they're actually trying to do and all the nuance of their world it all falls apart so that's that was that's the biggest um thing i found like at quantium yeah there's a really really strong quants that are thoroughly respected often with phds in astrophysics and stuff like that but then often there's some some guy that worked at woolworths for like five or ten years who'll have the you know have the drop on everyone because he'll right. be like oh this thing you're talking about, it's just that it's yeah. only worth, like, it's worth nothing. And yeah, like, I spent oh. years on this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are many face palm moments like that with like a bunch of geniuses in a room, myself not included. Like I'm talking about the real, like hardcore, like, you know, applied maths. Yeah. PhDs. Maybe haven't spent enough time at the coalface to actually see the problem mm. from the customer lens. Exactly. When you are collecting that data, how much of it is, you know, face-to-face user research with that, with that Woolies um, employee? When I was working there as a PM, I did lots of face-to-face research as okay, well as, you know, looking at actual um, numbers. I mean, our, our tool there was around, around um, automated um, automated insights, which later became artificial intelligence. Um, the, the bar kind of got raised over the, over, the, over the years. It got more ambitious, which was good. Um, it was about giving insights to um, suppliers of Woolworths to help them understand what's happened that week with a focus on the sales team rather than the category team. So it's a bit focus on more kind of tactical um, insights that people could use in week-to-week conversations. And um, yeah, like a lot of the user research there really helped us understand, okay, when, when they look at this insight, does it actually help them with the jobs they need to do every week? And it was an approach that um, had been less popular in the past just because a lot of the time it's like, okay, well, we got all these numbers, we can do this and this will be really, really cool. Whereas when you talk to them, they're like, I just need that number. And you're like, oh, that's actually really easy. And then they say, oh, I, need to, I need this. And then they're like, oh, wait, that's actually really hard, but it can be done. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's try and do it. I want to touch on something before. You mentioned you know, building trust and explaining uh, data to other people. And when, when you think about data and growth, you know, is it more a sequence of small 1% improvements that you need to demonstrate? Or do you think you need to show a bit of a big bang or an aha moment to really get people on board? I would say that it's more um, the big bang insights in my experience. 
I'd say that those 1% incremental improvements, they're kind of tactical decisions that, you know, no one's really watching very carefully. So, I mean, they're, they're useful. It's, it's good. Like I'll try and make the certain decisions I make when we're rolling stuff out at Lassian, where I can kind of just tell people what we should do. And if they all agree, and I'm talking about like just other developers, other people at my level. Yeah. Um, I can essentially just say, let's try like this. And people will be like, okay. Um, and no senior manager will ever, you know, um, you know, poke their nose in and ask us why we did that. Cause it's just, it's those 1% things that are so small. Like what color should this be? Should it be right. teal mm. or like blue? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, whatever brand standards might get on us, but like, otherwise it's fine. Sure. Um, but then when it comes to something like, um, a big, um, a big decision, like, should we roll this out or how should we roll this out or what should this feature be or which problems should we solve? Those, those are the things that are huge. And that's where like a good insight, like even just, and it's really the simple things that are, mm. that are much more powerful. I mean, all the machine learning stuff, like you look at um, some of the most advanced machine learning stuff out there. It's basically used for deep fakes or, you know, translating languages, stuff that's highly technical, but, yep. you know, it's not going to revolutionize a company unless you, it's a product you sell. Mm. Uh, um, whereas like just understanding something like getting a good, reliable, like indica- you know, metric definition for churn for your product can change the game for you. Cause a lot of the time I've worked in places where they don't really measure things properly and people kind of look at maybe financial metrics, which, you know, might be lagging. And then they'll have like multiple people defining churn in their own way, which can be totally different. You know, if you change the time period, you change the definition of things that have to happen. And then all of a sudden, if you get everyone around it, you're like, okay, this is the biggest indicator. And Hey, we have this lead indicator, which is huge. And if we can, stop this problem, we're going to have an impact here. And then all of a sudden, everyone's focusing on this thing instead of kind of everything. So that's where I see the value, at least from my perspective. Have you had any, you know, aha moments or those 1% changes that you thought this isn't going to work and then it surprised you? At Atlassian with, one of the, with, the, with Jira, with, one of the, with you know, Jira service management specifically, there's um, two ways for agents to um, create tickets. There's the way that we recommend um, and then there's the way that we kind of don't really recommend. And there's a bit of a, there's this one little bug um, that, you know, customers like admins are generally aware of, we're aware of it, and we're trying to, we're in the process of fixing it. And the idea was to basically just remove the bug because, you know, it's a, it's a thing that's getting in the way and there's no reason why we should keep it there. Um, but I, one of the designers asked the question, well, yeah, but we do know that there's some people that use this to kind of hack their way into make, getting a certain feature that isn't really a feature yet, but you know, they, they get this certain benefit from it. And people were like, yeah, but that's probably not many people. So we spoke to a few people and it turns out like, you know, you speak to 10 people, there'll be at least a couple of people who mention it, um, who are admins. But then the thing is you look at the numbers and it turns out this is one of the most common behaviors in the product. It is rampant. And um, which means that essentially if we were to just remove it, we'd have a lot of very, very angry people or admins who have to then cater to this and set, you know, change the configuration. Mm-hmm. So it was one of those like big aha moments of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. People like, we thought this is like an empty boat, like an empty building. We'll just like set some charges to destroy it and then we'll rebuild it and fix it. <laughs> and it's all great. But it turns out it's like a packed building full of people. So let's, let's evacuate <laughs> the building first. Yeah. Um, we take the metaphor very, very far. But yeah. yeah. That's awesome. People like the bug. It's not a bug. It's a feature. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I guess it's that whole UX thing of like, you know, there's a, that, you know, well, that nice path. And then there's that, you know, that 
um, dirt path in the middle that people are you know, using as a shortcut. That's exactly what it was. So thinking about your move from you know psychologist to data scientist to product manager, you know obviously a lot of those skills are probably skills a lot of product managers wish they had. But you know what what are some of the unfair advantages you think that data science and your data science mindset has given you as a product manager? Unfair is a is is like the kind of operative word there. I'd say like a good advantage because like I, I guess uh, I'm trying to like understand where where would be unfair where I'm really where I've really got the drop on people and I, I probably shouldn't. Um, I'd say more the biggest advantage is, is I'd say psychology first of all. I'll start with that. I think the benefit of psychology is that it's really all about um, understanding how you can measure things quantitatively. At least in Australia, the focus is on quant. How can you quantify things to understand something that is you know fundamentally like an individual level thing that you could empathize with so depression how do you quantify depression through like a an ins- you know a survey instrument right that will be reliable or how could you quantify you know learned helplessness in an experiment um and so the focus was always um so where in analytics i was able to stand out compared to other people with more math like you know applied math backgrounds is i'd be focused more on like well what does this mean for the person like what are they experiencing and then what is this model telling us about individual people, uh, which is not to say that they have bad training. I think like the applied math side, like they can, they can run laps around me when it comes to just understanding optimization formulas and stuff like that. Like that it's not to say that one's better than the other, but that's, that's where I excel. I'd say then in product management, um, a lot of the time, the challenge with quant stuff is that people don't know how to frame it as an analytical problem. So they often look at the wrong metrics. So right. like one example is, um, you know, people often default to things like, you know, what's a weekly active users? What does that look like? Is it going up? Is it going down? I usually kind of say, eh, I don't really care that much. Like I want to, I want, I care more about what's our engagement metric. Like, you know, you can simplify it with down, you know, which is daily active users divided by monthly active users or um, weekly divided by trimesterly users or something like that to just get a sense of, well, okay, we got this user pool and yes, maybe it's a thousand people, but are they all engaged? If they're all engaged, awesome. Let's try and get some new ones. If 40% of them are engaged, it's like, okay, well, maybe we have a leaky bucket. Let's let's try and engage them more so they stay with us. So I think um, that kind of stuff helps. And um, when it comes to talking to analysts, I kind of, if I'm talking to data analysts to get them to do some work, I'll often do lots of data analysis myself, obviously. Um, but if I'm talking to data analysts at um, Atlassian, a lot of the time it's like, okay, I know how the data comes in. I roughly know how I'd approach this. So I kind of can ask some questions in ways that make sense. And I can ask them about, okay, when we record events, how does this happen? So it kind of expedites the process. So I think on the, so there's kind of two sides to that. One is knowing what the output is, like what's the final result that will actually help. And the other is what's big and what's small. Because if I'm asking them to come up with something, often people kind of ask for the, for the whole you know galaxy of analysis, thinking it's going to take 10 minutes, which is every data scientist's kind of, you know, <laughs> like worst nightmare. And it's, it a, it's the same as a software engineer when you say, can you just move that thing over here? Surely that's going to take you like two seconds. <laughs> Drag and drop, right? All the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think um, typically um, there's always going to be some unfair advantage that each PM has. Like they either come from design, UX, engineering, most commonly, obviously, analytics, um, you know, delivery management. They typically come with a skill that they know well. So I'd say that, you know, having depth in something and then becoming a product manager is, is, is usually pretty good because it means that there'll be areas you'll excel at. And can we just dive a little bit more into your time at Atlassian? You know, what, what was your role there? Um, how do you work with the customers? What kind of problems are you facing there? My approach to the problem space um, in 
Jira Service Management, where I work, formerly known as Jira Service Desk. Um, it's, it's first just really understand the lay of the land. I say, in my mind, like the map of what a product manager should do is, is reasonably clear. I mean, I'm, it, it might be to some degree wrong. It probably is. Like all models are wrong, but it's still useful. Um, and I'd say it's, you know, you, you've got to understand the customer, the product and the market. Um, and then you've also got to have the general product craft things. Um, so in those three things, it's just knowing the customer. So I've been very aggressive in talking to, you know, just getting time with customers. Obviously, I'm not aggressive with the customers directly. <laughs> Tell me now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like talk to me. <laughs> no, like, I, have, I have spoken to, you know, like I think uh, over 75 customers since starting seven months ago. Awesome. Um, and I kind of plan on keeping that up. It's super useful. Every conversation, you learn something new and you build a new connection that you can kind of help you know, have a relation, you know, have a relationship with, and that ultimately drives empathy. And, um, it also makes the, the job more rewarding. You have people that you're actually doing things for. So there's things that you deliver for the newer users that are going to be easy to use, but you always have to consider backward compatibility. And it's been, that's the biggest challenge because you have some people where their knowledge of, if you, you can't, um, reduce the currency of their Jira knowledge, they have expertise in Jira and that is, Kind of job security and also its power in terms of being able to actually do things in the real world. So we don't want to stop that. So yeah, that's kind of how that's how it looks like. So I have a lot of advanced users I talk to, then also a lot of basic users. And the the difference is amazing. You have some people saying basically, I've done this thing with Jira that you never thought was possible. I'm like, wow. <laughs> and then you have other people like, how do I create a help desk? And you're like, okay, let me help you. <laughs> thinking about some of the blind spots that uh, you know data scientists may have if they're thinking about moving into product management, I'd love to think you know back to when you first moved into product management. What were some of your blind spots, and how would you teach uh, you know somebody moving from data science into product management to avoid some of the initial pitfalls? Probably there's a couple of things. I'd say the first is definitely um, just understanding stakeholder management and, you know, how to present ideas and make them compelling. Um, you know, you spend, when you spend most of your time coding, you have to do that. And then I think, so the other one is, um, uh, just all the, all the gaps that, and there's going to be lots of them. So let's start with the first one, um, with stakeholder management. I think one thing I once was explaining to, I was working with the analysts, we had to present our, our machine learning model to, um, the, um, for internal review at Quantium and, internal review at Quantium is intense. Like there are people that just know analytics really well. They've typically got really strong um, backgrounds in quant stuff and it's their, it's what they live and breathe. Right. And so when you present stuff to them, um, you need to make sure that you are super, super solid in everything. So even that level of just, that's like the basic of just going in and just having it together um, because there's so much work. Often people are working until half an hour before the session and they're like, quick, let's just throw some slides together. <laughs> and then they have one little thing that's off and then things kind of go down a rabbit hole. Um, then there's actually, you know, presented executives where everything has to be really, really polished and you'll get called out. Like these are, you know, working at Quantum, for example, um, you'd often have situations in board meetings where, you know, an executive would just look at one number and ask about it um, right off the bat at the beginning of a, of a meeting. Um, these are people who are very detail-oriented, very numbers-driven. And so you'd need to be, yeah, obviously super clear on the details. So that's the detail side. But then way more important than that is just understanding what stakeholders want and where they're, um, like, what's driving them. A lot of the time you'll have people resisting ideas because they have their own ideas that they prefer. Mm or they just don't uh, think this is the right direction, generally speaking. Um, there's a whole bunch of reasons why they might um, not be on your side. And it might not be that you have to work harder to um, 
to you know get their buy-in it might just be you have to have a few chats with them and sometimes it's just a little bit of talk therapy and they and they think you're great and they love your idea or just have a beer and they think you're okay and they trust you mm-hmm. uh, and in other cases it's actually oh i think you've like completely undercooked this or this is completely the wrong direction then you have to start thinking about incorporating that perspective so I definitely see that as something where the analysts struggle. That's kind of why they got me into product management because I was one of the analysts that was a bit more interested in that side of things. Right. Because, you know, if a model is built in the woods and it doesn't make a sound, you know, <laughs> does it even exist? Um, which that, is like, That's yeah, going to be your Twitter doesn't. quote, by the way. We're gonna... <laughs> <laughs> Please, Thank <go> you. <laughs> um, and I'd say then the other one is just, um, uh, so I, I mentioned that and there's just the gaps which is, you know, I work with PMs who are former engineers and they know engineering better than I do. I mm. can write code and I've worked with Git and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, we used to Python, R and SQL. But if someone said, make a website using JavaScript, I'd just stare at them blankly and maybe start like thinking about how I'm going to put together my resignation letter. Like I just <laughs> wouldn't, I have no, I've had no sense of what to do. Um, same goes for design. Like I work with a lot of designers who are really talented and sometimes I might be pushing back on ideas that they have um, for various reasons, but at the end of the day, they're the experts. And all I can really do is try and learn from them as much as possible and obviously be receptive to their ideas, uh, which is how you excel in product management because, you know, everyone's T-shaped at best um, and you're working with experts. But then also, um, yeah, learning as much as you can about their crafts. I mean, that, yeah, you can, you can still kind of, you can work without it just being, you tell me what we're doing to kind of, okay, let's collaborate a bit and I'll, we can you know, not argue over some of the details, but we can actually collaborate more effectively and, and find something which is not exactly what they had in mind or what I had in mind. Yeah, but it's hard at first. Sometimes people go too far where they think they're an expert and it's just like, no, 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 you're not a designer. You're not <laughs> Scale an back, yeah. Like, don't pretend. So you were saying that you've, you've spoken to 75 customers over your time at Atlassian. When you're looking at the user research questions, what kind of questions are you asking and what makes a good question to get the most information out of the customer? I typically try to just get context first um, by understanding, you know, just general things like organizational size, what vertical they play in, what's their role, how many people in the organization, what's their setup look like with Atlassian products. And then from there, maybe get into some specifics around what I'm trying to um, kind of dive into at the time. So um, I'm most interested in the admin experience of Jira. So I'm typically talking to admins and I'll say, okay, well, if I'm talking about the setup experience, I'll like I'll just get them to walk me through how they do it. Um, often, just say, "Oh, could you share your screen and just show me how you create like a new project?" For example, that's the kind of thing I do, just to kind of just to really understand um, with as little prompting as possible what they actually do, and uh, if possible, to to observe um, rather than ask. And obviously, asking nice open-ended questions where they don't just say yes, I do that, and that's it, and then I say yes, awesome, I can just tick a box and tell everyone that I was right. very good Johan you mentioned uh, before we went live a term called change boarding and that was new to both Matt and myself could you explain a little bit more about what change boarding is and how you use it at Atlassian so change boarding change boarding is um, just for all those who don't know because I didn't uh, change boarding is just how you um, how you signal and highlight to customers that a change has happened and make it clear what's changed so they can then um, identify what that means for them and if anything's changed in a, in a way that'll be substantive to their user experience. So the challenge of change boarding um, is it's in many cases, it's part of the onboarding experience. Some of these users will be new 
Um, in other cases, they're experienced users and they just need to find out uh, what's changed and whether it actually will be material to them. And so when you think about onboarding and change board in the context of Jira, uh, don't think of it like Facebook, where, okay, you're using Facebook and something changes. How do you tell people about it? Think about it more like Excel because it's a more technical product. So imagine someone who's sitting there and they are just writing a list of just their favorite, their favorite friends and yep. zero formulas, nothing's going on. And you're like, okay, uh, we've changed the way the, um, uh, we've changed the way solver, the solver macro works. They just don't care. So <laughs> you probably don't want to tell them that. Whereas sure. if someone's like deep in VBA and you change the way that, you know, you create formulas They'll probably have a heart attack. So you probably want to make sure that you beforehand <laughs> yeah. don't break anything for them. And then afterwards, um, you know, you make sure it's clear that it's coming. So I'd say um, with change boarding, yeah, it's, it's a super delicate one. You want to make sure that if the change is material, you're telling people ahead of time and then you let, you know, you turn it on. And then if it's a feature that might be disruptive, you maybe have an opt out button just to kind of make sure that you haven't made caused problems. And then afterwards you, you move towards, you know, the newer, the new state. And, um, yeah, the learning we've had is um, we recently moved from having a team dedicated to change boarding and onboarding for um, um, new experiences, et cetera, to just making that something that we let teams handle themselves. Because essentially, if you build something, you're one, probably the most passionate team about it. Um, you know, you've got, you've got heart, which is good. And also, you probably know the most about it. So it's probably going to be easiest for you to tell people you know, what's actually happened and what it means. Because otherwise you have this issue where you have this knowledge transfer, but stuff can get pretty deep. And often if you just give them a one hour meeting where you describe what changed, um, yeah, people just miss things. And then, Mm. you know, they go back and forth. It wasn't like it would get shipped wrong. It just wouldn't get shipped for a while because Mm. people would keep finding stuff. So, yeah. How do you typically tell people that you've, that something's changed within Jira? Do you just email them or is it just like a pop-up in their, in their dashboard? What's the best way to do it? Um, it's typically pop-ups in product because, um, like I said, it's a deep product. So you don't want to, um, I mean, emails do go out. Like there, there's a bit of a, obviously a multi-channel approach. You're not going to just have one way you do things, um, especially for bigger changes. But, um, and, you know, this is the way I see things from my perspective. So maybe take it with a certain grain of salt. But like typically the approach I've seen is pop-ups where you just, you know, do a little bit of a tour of what's changed um, to kind of, draw people's attention to what, mm-hmm. what, what those changes are and what it means, that's usually enough. Um, but it's certainly something, I know, I, in my mind, it's something that's hard because like I'll often just click through and just close everything. So, you know, <laughs> it's a typical challenge of onboarding. It's like everyone loves onboarding until they have to do it. And they're like, get rid of this. I hate it. I'm yeah. smart. I get it. <laughs> and then they get lost. <laughs> yeah. How, how do you catch the person that did hit the close and then is stuck? Like, do you have anything kind of watching for any of that behavior? <laughs> uh, um. That's a good question. Like there definitely are support channels and things like that. And there's this massive community of like Atlassian users that just love that love Atlassian enough to be very generous with their time mm. and help other users. Um, so there are those channels. Um, but yeah, you mentioned that. Now you mentioned that. I'm like, that's a really, really good problem. Um, one that people are definitely aware of, but it's, yeah, it's a tough one. Because what do you, what do you do? You give them more, ch- you know, change boarding that they already told you they don't want to see. It's kind of hard. <laughs> We've just found a new trigger for Upflow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Jahan Gonsal Corelli, Product Manager at Atlassian. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Lovely to be here. Thank awesome. you, Jahan. That was really awesome. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Net Positive Podcast brought to you by Upflowy. 